Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and Corridor Aesthetics.com. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer on board today. Dennis Goldford, professor of political science at Drake University. Hello, Dennis. Hi, Ben. Sarah Mitchell is with us as well, the F. Wendell Miller Professor of uh, Political Science at the University of Iowa. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Good to be here. We have so much uh, to get to today, as always on Politics Day, more than we can usually tackle in an hour. We'd like to throw this out to our listeners. If you'd like to join our conversation as we discuss a a variety of uh, recent uh, political news, 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100, or email us River to River at iowapublicradio.org. Later in the hour, we'll talk about how Iowa's election officials uh, are handling false election claims from prominent politicians. Uh, A disagreement there. Um, uh, We'll hear some audio um, from the candidates for the Secretary of State position here in Iowa. uh, President Biden says the pandemic is over. I guess this was a bit of a surprise to some of his health advisors. Um, The allegations against Michael Franken, which have surfaced in the recent days. Also, the southern border crisis marking a new record. And um, uh, Governor Reynolds and Deidre DeGier agreeing to just one debate. Uh, That's a... Uh, departing from previous election cycles. We'll talk about that. Also, uh, the other lead news we heard in our uh, hour that um, Vladimir Putin ordering Russia's first military mobilization since World War II. Uh, But first, let's start with this. Also at the top of the hour's news, uh, a lawsuit accusing the former president, Trump, of profiting from, quote, staggering fraud Um, This is according to a lawsuit filed today by the New York Attorney General, Letitia James. Um, In the lawsuit, uh, Donald Trump, uh, his family business, uh, and his three adult children uh, are accused in this suit of lying to lenders and insurers for more than a decade, fraudulently overvaluing assets by billions of dollars in this scheme. Uh, Ms. James concluding, according to this New York Times report, that Trump and his family business violated several state criminal laws and, in their words, plausibly broke federal criminal laws as well. Uh, Her office, uh, which in this case lacks the authority to file criminal charges, referred the findings to federal prosecutors in Manhattan. Not immediately clear whether the U.S. uh, attorney would investigate it this. Dennis, let me toss this to you. How significant is this uh, development? Also, we have to consider the context of the myriad of other investigations into the former president's actions. That's right. Uh, On the one hand, uh, it's uh, just another uh, iron in the fire for the Trump family in that sense. So they will, I'm sure, dismiss it as, uh, you know, witch hunt, politically motivated and so forth and not true. So this is not something that comes out of the blue as something they've never experienced before. On the other hand, it evidently is significant. Uh, Again, I'm not an attorney. I don't play one on the radio. But um, uh, as you noted, this is a civil case. They can refer it to uh, the appropriate authorities for criminal issues. But um, it's, uh, I think at this point, until there is some sort of production of actual evidence and um, 
Uh, of course, Mr. Trump is very famous for never using email and giving verbal instructions. So the question is, what kind of hard evidence documents, uh, uh, documents and such will there be for the prosecution in this case or the, uh, uh, the New York authorities to use? I believe they've got his former accountant, uh, is it Wesselberg, something like that, um, to testify in exchange for a certain lighter sentence in other regards. So it all boils down to the question of what kind of evidence can there be, but at the outset, um, of course, you've got uh, typically people who oppose Mr. Trump think, oh, yes, here's one more awful thing he's done, and the people that support Mr. Trump would say, uh, here's one more witch hunt against uh, an innocent businessman, and even if, in fact, uh, it were determined uh, at, at the, in the proper proceedings that the, he and the family and the organization did overvalue assets, uh, which is uh, contrary to New York state law, um, you still may have a, a large group of Trump supporters who say, well, we still don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Sarah, let me pivot over to the international news, uh, topping uh, our top-of-the-hour news uh, with you. This is the Russian president ordering Russia's first mobilization since World War II. Uh, Putin warning that if the West, if it continued to what he calls its its nuclear blackmail, that Moscow would respond with the might of all its vast uh, arsenal. Putin also backing plans for referendums uh, that could result in Moscow illegally seizing occupied parts of the country. Uh, This morning, uh, our president, Biden, said in an address to the United Nations General Assembly that the world has experienced, in his words, great upheaval over the past year, including a brutal, needless war, a war chosen by one man, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Let us speak plainly. A permanent member of the United Nations Security Council invaded its neighbor, attempted to erase a sovereign state from the map. Russia has shamelessly violated the core tenets of the United Nations Charter. No more important than the clear prohibition against countries taking the territory of their neighbor by force. Again, just today, President Putin has made overt nuclear threats against Europe and a reckless disregard for the responsibilities of the non-proliferation regime. Now, Russia is calling, calling up more soldiers to join the fight, and the Kremlin is organizing a sham referenda to try to annex parts of Ukraine, an extremely <coughs> significant violation of the UN Charter. Sarah Mitchell, let me draw on your mil- uh, your international political expertise. Uh, Putin, of course, reeling from these military setbacks in recent weeks. How significant is this partial mobilization, also together with what the president mentioned there, these uh, uh, illegal referendum uh, to more or less claim parts of Ukraine as parts of, pro- of, of Russia? Well, I think... Putin's actions are response to the significant Russian losses uh, that we've seen. You know, the the best battle death estimates we have are probably somewhere between 15,000 to 20,000 Russians killed and another 45,000 wounded. Um, And when you think about, you know, that the U.S. loss around 
you know, 4,000 or so in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, that tells you the scale of the losses that Russia is facing here um, versus about 9,000 battle deaths uh, for Ukraine. So first of all, uh, there's just been a huge cost in terms of human lives. But uh, Ukraine also had a very successful retaking of territory um, both in the south region uh, and in the the Donbass in September. So they were able to take back more than 6,000 square kilometers territory. Uh, And so this is a response basically to that loss of territory. Um, So this is calling for 300,000 reservists to join the fight. There's there's fewer than 200,000 Russians currently um, uh, in Ukraine. So that's a significant increase. I think that the part about the referenda, you have to remember that this is exactly the playbook that Russia used in Crimea. They they called they, you know, basically supported separatists. They went in and they called for a referendum and then they took the territory. Um, What's interesting in this case is that essentially four of the areas that will have a referendum, the Russians really only have territorial control fully of two of those areas, Luhansk and Kherson. Um, And so they're, they're claiming, right, to say that an attack on those areas, if these referendums pass, would be an attack on Russia. But because they don't have full territorial control, um, it's it's not clear, right, <laughs> what, right. how exactly so, that should be interpreted. Yeah, yeah. Sarah, speak to the domestic pressures that Vladimir Putin is facing that fed into this decision somehow um, regarding uh, the war. It's of course, notoriously opaque to sort of see uh, what's going on uh, in the, the, the Kremlin and with the, what, what typical Russians think of this. But what do you gather? Well, in my class last week, we just looked at his approval ratings. Uh, they increased from 71% in January before the war to 83% with the most recent data. So he's actually seen a significant increase in his approval following the the war effort. Uh, After he took Crimea, he was at 89%. So he's not quite as high as he was at that point in time. But um, so I would say that that's pretty interesting that you're you are seeing a kind of rally around the flag effect uh, among a lot of Russians. Um, But of course, right, the the economic sanctions that uh, Europe and the US and other states have imposed on Russia is, is certainly being felt, I'm sure, by the average uh, Russian citizens. And so, uh, and, and Europe is, has been announcing that they will, uh, the EU will impose even more sanctions in response to any of these referenda. So, so yeah. those economic costs are about to get even larger. Right. There are some reports of uh, Russia's opposition calling for protests. Um, of course, uh, we know news reports telling us there are risks to uh, protesting, uh, uh, Russians protesting uh, the uh, uh, Russian president's actions here as to winter in uh, Europe. Are European allies preparing for what could be a harsh winter without those Russian gas and oil supplies? as they have been in the past. Dennis, let me have you reflect on how the war in Ukraine is being viewed on our domestic front in this election uh, year and the um, unification, the degree of uh, unified uh, uh, parties in our country in backing Ukraine. Well, the Democrats certainly have been backing uh, the uh, uh, strong uh, response to the Russian invasion Republicans have been a little more mixed. I mean, consider uh, 
uh, Republican senatorial candidate Vance in Ohio, I believe early on, he said he didn't care about Ukraine one way or the other. And it, it, it's remarkable how I, I, I'm watching uh, the, the PBS series on the Holocaust this week. And uh, they were talking again about, uh, you know, the, the, the German invasion, the taking over the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia on behalf of uh, supposedly the German speakers in that area, which is like the Russians now talking about these particular areas Sarah mentioned uh, for the, the Russian supporters. And um, you saw people here that time at that point and again the the phrase was america first and the idea was that why do we want to send american uh men and women overseas to die for somebody we don't know much about and don't care about now nobody's talking about sending american troops now the way the issue came up in the uh late 1930s but nonetheless um you have um uh, again, I think strong democratic support for a robust response to the Russian actions and a bit more mixed on the Republican side. There are those who favor and support Mr. Putin, saying he's the kind of leader even America should have. That's a minority opinion, I think, in the Republican Party, but it's still a significant minority. And, and others just sort of keeping their heads down right now to see what happens. The concern, of course, with you, when you look at Europeans, and one piece I read this morning in response to all this, and I don't know that it affects us directly, was with regard to the whole issue of Russian control over natural gas uh, uh, supplies for Western Europe, how many of them want to freeze on behalf of Ukraine? That's always the issue. We're not facing that issue yet, but I know in my neighborhoods here, since the weekend, gas prices popped up 30 cents for what they were over the weekend. If you just joined us, the Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer, together with Dennis Goldford of Drake University and Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, our two political analysts, uh, political scientists, uh, giving us their views on uh, recently breaking political developments. Let's move to... Um, hey, from, Ben. Yes, Before go ahead, Before we move Sarah. on, could yes. I make one more point? <laughs> Absolutely. Sarah Mitchell, go for it. I was just going to say that, so in Biden's speech, you know, he emphasized what we call territorial integrity, mm -hmm. integrity norms, right? He said, if nations can pursue their imperial ambitions without consequences, you know, then we put everything at risk that this very institution stands for. You cannot seize a nation's territory by force. And so I think, you know, he's, he's reaffirming, right, that, that state sovereignty is, is essential and that countries can't take each other's territory. And what we've seen since this war broke out is recently Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan starting to fight over their border dispute. And mm -hmm. then Armenia and Azerbaijan also reigniting conflicts over their border dispute. And so I just wanted to point out that if you don't stand up to this kind of territorial aggression, then it essentially, you know, the norm itself starts to erode and other countries start to pursue their territorial claims. And, and so I think there's a broader consequence that goes beyond this war. Mm -hmm. So Politics Wednesday edition uh, of River to River with Sarah Mitchell and Dennis Goldford. Let's uh, move um, from our international scene to our Iowa scene. Um, a former campaign aide for the Iowa Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate, Mike Franken, alleged in a report with the Des Moines police that Franken grabbed her collar and kissed her on the mouth without her cons consent in March. The Republican-aligned blog Iowa Field Report first reported on this police 
report Monday. Uh, IPR also obtained a report from the Des Moines Police Department. Franken denies the allegations, uh, and uh, incumbent U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley told Radio Iowa he is aware of the police report and Franken's denials. Franken made this a campaign issue, I think, by his comments, but it's not a campaign issue that I'm going to follow up on. Sarah Mitchell, comment on how this is likely to impact the, the race. Your thoughts here. Well, I, I don't think we really know yet because, you know, the stories that we've seen so far, you know, indicate that there was a claim, but that the Polk County Attorney Office thought there was insufficient information or evidence to pursue a criminal investigation. Um, and so, you know, in theory, it sh- it shouldn't have an effect if that's true, but if there's more information or, or if more people come forward with claims, we've certainly seen, you know, what happened to the other Franken, <laughs> um, Al Franken, uh, you know, and other politicians who have been uh, accused of, of such things. So yeah. so whether this is a political stunt or, you know, there's more to it, I guess we'll, we'll see as we go forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, comment also, Sarah, on this in the, well, what does this say about the politics in our post-Me Too era, specifically about the politics of the Democratic Party? They treat these things di- differently, or at least the, their voters seem to, right? Yeah, I definitely think you see an asymmetric treatment where Democratic candidates pay a, ba- a bigger cost for these kind of claims. You can go back to you know, Gary Hart or John Edwards. You can think of lots of Democrats who have, who have paid uh, the price for you know, sexual accusations. Meanwhile, you know, former President Trump has over two dozen such allegations against him, but that that hasn't really diminished uh, support for him uh, among a certain subset of Americans. So, mm-hmm. let me um, yeah, note Dennis, if I can, Dennis, please. That uh, sure that um, you know whether there's anything to the allegations or not, and remember. Uh, that the police decided, and uh, according at least to the one report I read, um, it was uh, a female officer and a female assistant attorney, county attorney. So both women, who I think would be open and especially sensitive to an issue like this, found that there was no there there. So there's that factor. But at the same time, and of course nobody's been able to talk to uh, the, the woman who's made the charges, but for anybody of any party in a situation like this, whether the allegations have any merits or weight to them or not, anytime you're explaining, you're not campaigning. Uh, in other words, it distracts, it detracts completely from uh, your being on your particular message and just gets in the way. And if you were behind, certainly that diminishes the amount of time and opportunity you have to close the gap with uh, your opponent. Let's go to uh, caller Cindy, one of our listeners in Des Moines. Cindy, welcome to the program. Hi. Hi. Um, all I wanted to say was I, I think it's because Mike Franken is a formidable candidate, and I think that it's kind of suspicious that it's happening at towards the end of the um, campaign. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. Uh, Cindy, thank you very much. Of course, we have a term for that in, in politics, uh, don't we, Dennis? An October surprise, even though it's it's uh, September. Uh, <laughs> suspicions raised, uh, uh, especially among uh, d- Democratic-leaning uh, or uh, independents who would be for Michael Franken in this case. There's always a suspicion on the part of the supporters of whichever candidate is undergoing allegations like these. Yes, there's there's no question about that. Uh, but remember, one of the fundamental things a candidate is trying to do when running for office, uh, regardless of particular policy stances, is basically to say to voters and likely voters and perhaps uh, voters you can win over is that you can trust me. I'm a person of integrity. I'm trustworthy uh, to represent you and what's good for you and our district, our state, our country. And so allegations such as these, even if you know nothing else about the candidate, get in the way of establishing and, in fact, are very deleterious uh, with regard to establishing that kind of trust that uh, a a candidate is trying to create. Mm -hmm. Sarah, I'd like you to comment on one more facet that seems to feed into this discussion and this news development. Uh, Comment on this in the context of the issue of abortion seen as mobilizing female voters in this election cycle since the Supreme Court uh, issued the Dobbs opinion. Um, in what way do you think they're related? Well, in the fact, in the fact that this, uh, they both have to do with. Um, uh, well, we have we have a uh, a female accusing uh, a candidate uh, of um, inappropriate behavior uh, in the same election cycle when we're seeing polling showing uh, female voters being swayed by this issue of. Um, uh, well, a new era we have for abortion access in the country. Yeah, but I think there's cross-cutting cleavage here because this is an accusation against a Democratic candidate, mm-hmm. whereas Democratic Party is much stronger, you know, advocates for, um, you know, having pro-life or, you know, pro-choice policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in this case, I mean, I agree that that women can be activated by by this but because it's a claim against a democrat that's why i'm talking about like i feel like it's a little bit Mm cross-cutting okay um dennis we have a few seconds before we go to break any anything further thoughts before we wind up this and move on in the next part of the program uh sure well again charges like these simply get in the way of the franken campaign i mean for the grassley campaign They just need to stand back and enjoy the spectacle to the extent that there is a spectacle. But, yes, Democrats are clearly trying to use um, a reaction to the Dobbs decision, allowing states to restrict abortion as they will. Democrats are trying to use opposition to that decision on their behalf, and I think that's where your question is coming from. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, again, if all of a sudden your candidate isn't – uh, you know, pure as the driven snow in regard to certain key issues, uh, that's going to hate, uh, disadvantage or hurt any candidate in that position. Okay, we'll be back uh, with more analysis from Dennis Goldford and uh, Sarah Mitchell, our two political scientists, Sarah from the University of Iowa, Dennis from Drake University. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And we're back with this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Sarah Mitchell with us of the University of Iowa. Dennis Goldford of Drake University, our two political scientists on board, as we uh, provide their thoughts on the, some of the latest uh, political news uh, from international uh, political news uh, to right here in Iowa. Let's uh, continue on uh, with some uh, Iowa political news during a Friday taping of Iowa Press on Iowa PBS. Republican Secretary of State Paul Pate and Democratic challenger Joel Miller disagreed on how vocal Iowa's top election official should be in the lawmaking process and uh, in pushing back on false election claims from prominent politicians. Uh, Now, Pate is running for his fourth term, Republican as a Secretary of State. Miller, a Democrat, has been Lynn County Auditor since 2007. Let's get to some audio here. Um, uh, Joel Miller, uh, the Democratic challenger, said his opponent's support of former President Donald Trump, his, his lawyer, and Giuliani are concerning in a conversation with Iowa Press. I think that the Secretary of State not only has the the, obliga- the obligation to uh, make sure the elections are secure, but also we have election deniers out there. Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and Paul Pate is associated with those people. And you endorsed those people in 2007, Rudy Giuliani for president. Uh, you had um, Donald Trump come to a fundraiser uh, for you in 2015, and you've done nothing to disavow what has been said, what they have been saying. And there's a direct line from those people to Mike Lindell, to Dr. Doug Plank, who came to Buchanan County about a month ago and started um, basically conspiracy theories that result in voter challenges across the state, including 119 in my county that I have to hold hearings on next Monday. Now, while many Republican Secretary of State candidates are campaigning on the platform, they would not have certified the election results in 2020. Pate, our Secretary of State, said regardless of party, the Secretary of State must follow the law. As a Secretary of State, you don't get to wear a team jersey. You're the referee. So you follow the laws and the rules that you have on the books. And when you look at the last presidential election, if you follow the laws on the books like we did here in Iowa, uh, then we have a legitimate winner. And you need to recognize that. And I'd hope my colleagues in other states would follow suit with that. Okay. Uh, Let me turn to you, Dennis, first of all. What do you make of Joel Miller's claims that uh, Secretary of State Pate isn't doing enough to push back against um, these election lies uh, across the country? I think some of that, frankly, at this point is is campaign rhetoric, uh, trying to find an angle with which to uh, secure an electoral advantage. Uh, But sure, I mean, the election deniers have been on the Republican side, and Paul Pate is a Republican. We have to remember that uh, while in Iowa the Secretary of State is a partisan political figure, you belong to one party or the other, maybe a third at some point, but not likely, um, the function of the Secretary of the State is supposed to be nonpartisan. In other words, you're supposed to guarantee the integrity of the election system. And if, in a way, you're in an odd position if you start to become a denier or a questioner of sorts as Secretary of State, because you're telling the public that your own people, your own 
uh, segment of the government is failing at doing its job. So that's an awkward position to be in. Um, you, everybody agrees that we've got to have trust in our election system. And people are only human. At times something uh, turns out uh, in a way that, uh, you know, there's human error or someplace like that. Um, but at the same time, there is absolutely no evidence of any widespread or systematic election uh, malfeasance uh, that would have changed the course of any particular election. I mean, the Miller-Meeks win by six votes last time around is an anomaly that, that shows you why that we normally don't have these issues, and there were no allegations, I recall, there. But it's been the Republicans since Donald Trump started voicing this in the 2016 campaign who suggest that uh, uh, either they win, in which case the election administration was fine, or if they don't win, that shows there was something faulty, erroneous, or conspiratorial or rigged about that election. And that's a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose kind of approach that um, you do have to fight back against. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I don't believe that Mr. Pate has been taking that position, but Miller is attempting to pin him in that regard. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, is this more than uh, a sort of a, a, a political attempt to, to uh, uh, try to get some traction here by Miller or his claims? Uh, how do you evaluate them? Well, I think Miller, as Lynn County Auditor, was you know in the middle of you know a lot of the changes that were made to our election laws, right? So he had his office had sent out absentee ballot requests. They had placed absentee ballot drop boxes outside grocery stores, um, and so part of the uh, election law changes in Iowa, right, are are that now counties can only have one absentee ballot drop box that county auditors uh, like Miller are not allowed to send out, you know, to mail out absentee ballot requests. And they also shorten the, the number of days you can early vote before an election from 29 to 20 days. And that, that had already been shortened by the GOP from, I think it was over 40 days before that. They've shortened the polls, closing now at 8 p.m. instead of 9 p.m., um, on election day. And so, and, and if you look across the, the Brennan Center uh, tracks, you know, all of the kind of uh, election interference legislation that's happening across the country. And just in this year, in 2022, we've seen 27 states enacting 148 election interference bills. And this follows a huge wave of this in 2021. Um, and so a lot of uh, red states are enacting these kind of um, you know, restrictions on voting um, in, in Democratic view is that this is an attempt to disenfranchise and discourage, especially, you know, non-white voters, um, mm. voters for whom it's it's more difficult to get out on Election Day. Sarah, I know the New York Times had a big piece on this comparing all 50 states, but uh, in your view, how do Iowa's new voting laws compare with other states uh, in terms of how easy, how hard it is to uh, vote. Well, I, I don't think ours are, you know, as draconian as other states. Um, so like in the South, we've seen some, you know, closing of a lot of different locations for voting, and those are often concentrated in, in Black areas. Um, you know, so just that makes it harder for people to vote because there's fewer places to vote, and then they have to stand in very long lines, and then you limit the time you can vote right on election day mm -hmm. um and so 
So I, I don't think Iowa's actions, I, I, maybe I put them in the middle of, of where these restrictions are, um, yeah. not, not as harsh as what we've seen elsewhere. Dennis, we have a, a, a listener, Dirk, who wants to have you uh, comment on how these conspiracy theories um, um, could be impacting our the, the faith in our democratic systems and, and the importance of that when sort of election lies are, are not put down. Um, I, I think that's what behind is behind Dirk's uh, question there. Sure, I mean that's that's what I was mentioning before, and, and I thank Dirk for that that concern. Um, yeah, I mean you people have got to have faith that the election system, allowing for the occasional human error, which almost never affects uh, the outcome of a race, uh, at least in modern times, um, we've got to have faith that this is on the up and up. Otherwise. What we will have is what we've seen since uh, 2020, the view that the uh, elected president of the United States is in some way illegitimate. Um, and that, that just is an acid that dissolves faith in the system, and the system works only if people have faith in it. But I think that's where you have, uh, again, this, there's this long-standing sense you've got so many people, for whatever reason, so alienated from our political system that they are open to suggestions that there is something rotten in Denmark, if you will. And uh, if, if, if enough people continue to believe that and especially are willing to take up arms in that regard, um, then that upsets the whole system. Elections, as I've said before, elections work only when the loser agrees to lose. And what we've seen, at least since 2020, is a case in which losers have not agreed to lose, and that's tremendously disrupting and tremendously dangerous. The only other time in our history when the losers did not agree uh, to lose was in 1860, and we know how that turned out. Mm-hmm. Politics and what? also, among the, the some of the Republican primaries that just happened, you had some of the losers saying they didn't accept the outcome. So even yeah. within the intra-party right. vote, right. It started, it's starting to affect uh, their willingness to accept even primary outcomes in their own party. Final 10 minutes of uh, our Politics Wednesday with Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Dennis Goldford of Drake University. Let's try to squeeze in some analysis about a, a few more items here. Um, uh, this week, I think it was on Sunday, uh, President Biden declared the COVID-19 pandemic over. This was with an interview with Scott Pelley from CBS's 60 Minutes. Mr. President, first Detroit auto show in three years. Yeah. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic in, is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing, and I think this is a perfect example of it. Now, Biden's statements evidently caught health care professionals, including his own senior health officials, by surprise. Uh, Dr. Kavita Patel, a primary care physician who was a policy advisor during the Obama administration, told NBC News there is not enough information at this time to say the pandemic is over. The end of a pandemic is not this clear, bright line, like moving from one state to another or changing a time zone. It's actually a kind of a combination of dimensions. And a lot of them are psychological. And I think that's what the president reflected. But we're still not at the end of it because we don't have kind of a regular seasonality that we can expect. We don't know if and when a next surge might happen. And then I think on top of that, you're right, four to 500 deaths a day. 
that might be where we are at kind of permanently, but we just have too little information about the future, the near future even, the six months to know that. Sarah, what do you make of the president's remark on 60 Minutes? Well, yeah, I think it's clear that he said that without, you know, consultation with his administration, um, because there's kind of some backpedaling on it uh, on the back end. Um, But but, you know, the I think this kind of issue plays well. You know, I, I noticed that in like one of Reynolds campaign ads, you know, she's talking about how Iowa's always been like running a normal business, you know, like things have always been the same here in Iowa. Um, and, mm-hmm. and this is so I, I think that kind of message actually plays well uh, to a to a broad uh, voting base. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in terms of I mean, I do think it's true if you look at excess death rates, uh, we're finally back within a normal range for the U.S. So, so you know, before we, we can't know exactly how many people die from COVID, um, but we know that if more people are dying than in past years in excess deaths, then then there's really, you know, real problem. And I had seen some some evidence that we were finally getting back within the normal range there. So I, I think. Biden's statement is reflecting the fact that the vaccines combined with the the treatments that we have are effective. Now, the downside here is that this could uh, give the GOP, you know, some fuel for not supporting additional funds for federal COVID relief, or it could discourage people from getting the, you know, the most recent Omicron uh, vaccine. And that, that would be really problematic, right, if people are not continuing yeah. to get their vaccine shots uh, to, to help keep this thing in the range it's at now. Let's move on to immigration before our hour ends. Uh, it's in the news in a couple of different ways. We had, according to the latest Customs and Border Protection data, American border officials have had over 2 million encounters with migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border so far this fiscal year that sets a new record. Um, Large numbers of migrants on the southern border continuing to be a logistical, a humanitarian, and a political challenge for the Biden administration. Uh, Republicans uh, really pouncing on the issue. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis recently flying migrants and asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. The latest development there, migrants who were flown from Texas to Martha's Vineyard suing DeSantis uh, and other state officials uh, yesterday, uh, alleging they were victims of fraud for political purposes. Uh, Dennis, comment on the, this latest immigration news. Of course, the root problem here, uh, we have no, and haven't for years, reached any bipartisan consensus on um, immigration policy overhaul, have we? Right. No, it's, it's, it's been a good uh, campaign issue for Republicans who have been much more suspicious of of immigration, uh, some suspicious of legal as well as illegal. But yes, you have all sorts of people fleeing various kinds of countries in Latin America, some for political reasons, many more for social and economic reasons. And you certainly have um, all sorts of uh, uh, people in this country willing to uh, hire them um, for sometimes the same amount of money, sometimes possibly for less. I don't know exactly, but there's certainly a, a labor force issue that's there. Um, but I think that um, uh, you know Trump in in that 2016 said very famously, "You can't have a country if you don't have borders." 
and that's resonated very strongly with his particular supporters uh, in and of itself, aside from political favoritism one way or the other, that's not an unreasonable thing to say. I mean, just try to try to uh, fly to Europe uh, without your passport or any kind of documentation that you have. Um, you know, countries want to be able to control who comes in. But the problem is you've got these waves of people coming here out of social economic desperation, wanting to work, wanting to pursue that American dream, as we call it. And yet you have uh, you have many Americans who uh, might welcome that. Others feel very threatened by that. And so it's the sort of thing that lends itself very easily to demagoguery on both sides rather than trying to find some um, way of achieving a compromise. It's more useful to people on both sides as a campaign issue than as a policy problem to be solved. One bit of political news uh, left to, to touch on, if we could, this hour with you before we say goodbye. The, our Republican governor, Kim Reynolds, and the Democratic, her Democratic opponent, Deidre Dejeer, scheduled to appear together in one October debate before the election. The single debate uh, would be a departure from recent election cycles where uh, governor candidates have typically agreed to three debates. Dejeer uh, calling on Reynolds to participate in uh, the more usual three debates, saying she doesn't believe one debate will offer enough time to cover the breadth of issues she wants to discuss. But uh, Reynolds uh, uh, has uh, so far only accepted the one uh, that is an hour-long debate to be on October 17th on Iowa PBS. Sarah, help us understand <laughs> this debate over debates and how an incumbent and challenger view debates differently, typically. Well, I mean, I think Reynolds has an eight point plus lead, so it's it's not in her incentive. Well, I mean, you would think she wouldn't care either way, um, but uh, I guess she has incentive to, to restrict the number of debates here. Um, yeah. So um, I, I wanted to say also on the, the border issue that okay. just going back to that for a second that. We have to understand, like, what's happening in Venezuela is a terrible situation. So the Maduro government, you know, has engaged in a brutal repression campaign where they're, you know, killing people, disappearing people, arresting people, torturing people. You know, the ICE, the International Criminal Court started a, an investigation into crimes against humanity that the government's committing. And people don't have access adequately for food or health care. And so that's why six million plus people have migrated out of Venezuela. And so, so I, I just want to say like, we have to remember like the situation that these people are coming from and, and how desperate they are. Um, and, and so to have these political stunts with people that have escaped really horrible situation is, is something that I am strongly opposed to. Okay. Good point. Dennis, we have a minute or two. Did you want to comment on the, uh, anything else, um, the, the governor's uh, single debate or anything sure. else? Yeah. Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, a debate always represents both opportunity and risk or danger for a candidate. It's an opportunity to become more well-known. I mean, people tend to know at this point who Kim Reynolds is. She doesn't want to give a platform to, her, to Dietra Dujer. Reynolds has, what, 10, 12 times as much money as uh, Deidre Dujer has, so she doesn't have a lot of exposure. She's not very well known. So that, that, uh, that, that uh, certainly advantages the incumbent, in this case, Kim Reynolds. 
So on the one hand, she doesn't want to give any kind of extra exposure to, to the Jir for people who would watch it who might not otherwise know who she is. On the other hand, um, uh, you know, Republican candidates or candidates, I guess, of both parties now increasingly feel through social media, the Internet, through paid advertising and so forth, they can put the message about themselves out in ways that favor them and they're quite happy with. And many around the country now, not just here, don't feel they need debates anymore. But again, the opportunity is to try to expand your range of support. The danger is, you, especially with just one debate, you say something, you do something that's just this, this incredible self, uh, self-induced self error of some sort. You don't have another chance to correct that or go back and fix that. Yeah. We have less than 50 days before the midterm election. Sarah, some parting words on what you are watching at this point. Well, I think I predicted a few months ago that Biden's approval would rise, and I'm glad to see I was right about that. So, so I think, uh, yeah, and kind of going back to the dot, how the Dobbs decision is affecting uh, voter registration, we're seeing a, a lot of increase among women voters, and especially young women voters. So, so I think you know Democrats have to be feel good about the general direction that those those two trends are. Are, you know, are voting well, although we're seeing some interesting data like in Georgia where you're getting, you know, Democrat leading in the Senate race, but the Republican leading in the governor race. So so I think it, it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds. OK, indeed. And uh, we'll be checking back in with both of you in the weeks to come as it does unfold. Uh, Sarah Mitchell is the F. Wendell Miller Professor of Political Science at the University of Iowa. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Dennis Goldford, Professor of Political Science at Drake University in Des Moines. Always great to have you on board, Dennis. Thank you. Until next time. Always a pleasure. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. River to River today produced by Caitlin Troutman and Natalie Dunlop with help from Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.